Welcome to season two of My Ministry Breakthrough, brought to you by Oxano. I'm your host, Brian Rose. This podcast is all about church leaders telling unfiltered stories of impact in the local church. We're here to celebrate and share those life-changing moments when the fog of ministry chaos clears and breakthrough clarity happens. The church has bought into this um, cultural lie that we're all too busy to prioritize things that should be important to us. And the reality is that discipline is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. And so if people are giving their discretionary time a lot of other places, and yet they're not willing to give it to the church, well, then that's on us. That means that we've not communicated a compelling vision for why this matters. Uh, And so that's part of the job of those of us in church leadership. And it's not something that you can just whip yourself into a frenzy over. You have to believe down to the soles of your feet that uh, if people don't have basic Bible literacy, that there are actual negative, very negative consequences associated with that. Discipline is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. Today's church faces a cliff. It's not a cultural cliff of unbelief. It's not a financial cliff of less givers. It's not even an attendance cliff of inconsistent presence. It is a cliff of firsthand biblical knowledge. And for my guest in this episode, author, speaker, and director of classes and curriculum for the Village Church Institute, Jen Wilkin, biblical literacy changes everything. Jen and I cover a broad spectrum of topics in this episode, from rooftop Zen gardens to the polarizing perspectives around the role of women in the church. There are so many moments I wanted to ask a follow-up question and go deeper, but nobody would listen to a four-hour podcast. So this is just the beginning of an incredible conversation on the dire consequences of an underdeveloped personal understanding of God's Word and the implications to everyone in the local church as a result, from pastor member to staff to volunteer. Jen's breakthrough moment actually traces its roots back to her childhood, growing up not in just one church, but many churches, as the child of a single mom struggling to find her place and value to the local church. This is truly a listen a couple of times to catch everything kind of an episode. So lean in and listen up to my ministry breakthrough with Jen Wilkin of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Jen, thanks for spending some time with us on My Ministry Breakthrough. It's great to have you. Where are you right now? Tell us, give us a a, a visual of your location. All right. I'm coming to you from my office in Flower Mound, Texas at the Village Church. It's a windowless doom, if you must know the truth. Windowless doom. So you've got an office that's in the center of the boat. Is that what you're saying? There's no window? Yeah, there are no windows anywhere. Our our, um, building used to be a grocery store. So um, the only windows that are in the whole building are up at the very front where you would originally have put your shopping cart on your way out the door. Yeah. Uh, the rest of us all just work in basically closets. And you can't, you can't take your desk up there. You can't go sit where the shopping carts are, or is that frowned now, upon? Or? Every now and then I'll go up there. That's our connection central area. So every now and then we'll go up there and try to get a little vitamin D. I've been lobbying for us to have a Zen garden on the roof for a number of years now, but no one has come through on that for me. So I feel like I'm going to endow it one day and it'll be the Jen Wilkin Memorial Zen Garden on the roof. So nobody's nobody's building you a Zen garden and you're going to no, have to just, die in order to see it happen? Is that what you're saying? It's looking that way. It's looking that way. I feel like I've asked to the point that it's now 
Discord when I ask about it. And so, yeah, I'm going to have to do some fundraising or something. I don't know. I love it. How long have you been at the church? Give us a little uh, background, a snapshot of your church ministry story there. Uh, we've been at the village for 12 years. I've been on staff for uh, a little over seven, but I initially came on staff just in an hourly role. Um, I was doing parachurch ministry in the community and uh, and just took a job here to earn a little money to help put my kids through college. Uh, and then eventually came on staff in a role reflecting what I do. So for the last four years, I have been a part of the Village Church Institute staff, uh, and we are responsible for the adult Christian education here at the Village. Okay, and so y'all you y'all call your Bible studies classes those kind of things the Institute? Is that yeah, is that right? The Institute is actually we have a residency for um, it's pastoral and also um, just ministry leader uh, related. And then we also have the training program, which is our 32-week seminary level instruction at the church, at the local church level. We love that. Uh, And then then we have core classes, and then we also have the Bible studies, which are the largest attendance-wise. They're sort of an evergreen environment. You're never going to outgrow. Right. And so that, that sounds like you're covering just about every type of church member you guys may have at the village. Yeah, we, we hope so. The core classes are meant to be entry points. There's uh, three of them, and they're very they're Christian story, Christian belief, Christian formation. So they're just very basic, uh, high-level, um, like story of scripture and um, uh, habits of holiness, those kinds of things. And then the Bible studies, we're always doing, that's my, my favorite part, um, we're always doing line-by-line study through entire books of the Bible. So my responsibility on the Institute staff is for our adult classes. So I oversee okay. curriculum writing and training of teachers. And then I also teach in the women's study on Tuesday mornings and Tuesday evenings. So I, I know that about you. I know that the line by line, the Bible study is your favorite, but, yeah. but tell me why, why is that so for you important or your favorite? Why do you smile when you say, you know, you get to teach those well, classes? My story of being a child of the church is is not of growing up in, in one particular denomination. I was the child of a single mom. My parents divorced when I was about eight. And um, so when you're a single woman in the church, you usually kind of keep moving around because you don't always fit very well, mm-hmm. which is another thing I care a lot about is making sure that the local church has a place for the, for the single mom or the divorced woman uh, or the woman whose husband's not a believer. So we moved around uh, between churches in our hometown. And by the time I got to college, I had had pretty significant length of time spent in about seven different denominations. And what I found was that everyone there in in each of the churches that we were in, there was someone speaking from a pulpit uh, with deep conviction and holding the same book, but they weren't all saying the same thing. And then ended up in college getting a, an English degree and began to wonder why it was that we treated the Bible so differently than we did Shakespeare or... Um, or what do you any, mean? What do you mean? Well, we didn't treat the Bible like a book. We treated the Bible like it was magical. Like if I opened it up, the Holy Spirit was just going to blurp out uh, insight on me uh, just because I had been faithful to sit down and give it a little bit of my focus. And... Um, and so as I began learning, it was all stuff I'd started to learn in high school, just basic literacy tools for reading any book. I began to wonder why those were not being utilized uh, specifically in women's environments. Um, but I would say the problem is more pervasive than that. I just at the time wouldn't have known that. 
but why was it that when we came to the Bible, we weren't asking the same kinds of questions of it as we were of just any book? Like, like we basically, we treat the Bible often with less respect than we would treat uh, a common textbook or the works of Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, but you know, it's written, it certainly has a divine author that's not in question, but it, it also has human authors who were chosen by the Lord. And, and I, I now I've written three books and I've never once sat down and written something thinking, you know what, I just, they can take whatever they want from it. Or, you know, maybe they'll just read a paragraph out of chapter five and meditate on it for a while. And it'll just really hit them with something big. Like a writer starts somewhere with their argument. They build to a point, they've come to a conclusion uh, and so on, and, and the books are written. And so we should recognize, obviously, the Bible is much more than a book, but it is at least a book, and uh, that it would abide by some some rules that, that all books abide by. It has a message it means to communicate, and it's doing so using specific piece of language and tools and genre and all of that. So let's come back to approaching the Bible with maybe a higher literary regard, maybe a higher regard to point of view and message. How does that translate to the Bible studies and to the work you're doing um, in, in writing? Yeah, well, I think one of my biggest takeaways from the way that I grew up was that the best way to guard against um, false teaching, but I would also add another category that we don't often talk about, and that's just bad teaching. <laughs> like there's yeah. There's people who are teaching error, and then there's people who are just teaching like secondary points as the main point, or uh, wow. or you know uh, they're they put the emphasis in the wrong place, or they're using the text to make their point so that the point that the text is making. So the only way that the average person in the pews, and I say that not as a derogatory term at all, yeah, I yeah. consider myself to be one of those people too. But the only way that that person will be able to develop discernment around what is sound teaching and what is not sound teaching is if they have firsthand knowledge of the, hmm. their sacred text. And then what I began to realize was that that was actually pretty rare among churchgoers that, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with just how for the past 30 years or so, certainly longer than that, but for the past 30 years or so, when we have perceived ourselves to be in the majority, uh, when most people that we met would have at least claimed to be Christian, whether they actually were or not, and might've had some form of cultural Christianity, um, those who had a platform became comfortable with holding the position of expert. And those who sat in the pews became comfortable with holding the position of amateur. And um, we had a, a pretty distinct expert amateur divide that developed between those two spaces. And it felt comfortable to us, but it meant that the people in the seats took on this idea that they required someone to, to just download to them uh, the interpretation and the application of the text. And so we then came to a place, I would say, where most of us were coming to church to sit under teaching over passages that we had spent little to no time in ourselves prior to listening to that teaching. And so when that's the case, you're just in a situation that's ripe for the false teacher or the misguided teacher to take the message wherever they want it to go. Um, so the first, the first guard against false teaching is just knowing what the text says. And what we had done is, is um, we had called discipleship. Oh, it's when you give someone what the text means and how it should change them. And in many cases, what we were doing was just saying, this is how it should change you. We would yeah. skip straight to application without asking anyone to develop their own critical thinking skills, their own tools for analyzing 
or thinking about what they're reading so that they can weigh one against another. I think, I think most of us, you know, in church leadership would agree with that, but we also probably sit there and say, Hey Jen, we're having a hard enough time getting people to show up two Sundays a month anymore, let alone show up having read the text, having firsthand knowledge of what it says, you know, can't, can we just get a little bit of a win in, in, in telling them this is how they should apply it to their life? I mean, isn't there not a little bit of a win there? Or I, how do you inspire people to, 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 to take it on themselves, to, to read and, and know the text themselves? Well, so this is what's so funny to me is that's the question that the church asks and it throws its hands up in the air, but that's the question that everyone who is vying for people's discretionary time is asking. Uh, uh, that's what their personal trainer asks before he comes up with a plan to get to commit to a 30-week eating plan or workout plan. That's what their child's um, travel soccer coach is thinking about before he gets them to sign away their life and all of their money toward his regimen for their kid for a year. And so I think that the church has bought into this um, cultural lie that we're all too busy to prioritize things that should be important to us. And the reality is that discipline is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. Mm -hmm. And so if people are giving their discretionary time a lot of other places, and yet they're not willing to give it to the church, well, then that's on us. That means that we've not communicated a compelling vision for why this matters. Uh, And so that's part of the job of those of us in church leadership. And it's not something that you can just whip yourself into a frenzy over. You have to believe down to the soles of your feet that uh, if people don't have basic Bible literacy, that there are actual negative, very negative consequences associated with that. And that if they do have biblical literacy, that there are actual positive consequences associated with that as well. But I think we've talked ourselves out of the importance of this. We've, we think it's okay if we're the ones who know it and they don't, or we think, oh, I mean, they know it, right? I mean, they, I mean, I know it, so they know it, right? And uh, I have found uh, almost without exception, and I speak in a lot of churches all over the country, uh, and even in my own church, um, that people don't know the Bible. They would yeah. fail a simple pop quiz. And in fact, I actually give a simple pop quiz when I speak on this um, pretty frequently, just so that, and especially when I speak to church leaders, because it's, it's a really important moment for uh, church staff that's doing a training to, to sit and take a pop quiz over their sacred text and, and feel that feeling in the pit of their stomach of, I think I'm failing this. Uh, because that's the, that's the feeling that the person in the pews yeah. feels on a regular basis, and they think they're supposed to conceal that. And what we really need them to do is admit it, and we all need to admit it so that we can start moving forward. So, so many, so many things you just said there um, to go back to and dig. I mean, my brain is swimming of, you know, discipline is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. And yeah. That, that is a, that is a look in the mirror moment for us as church leaders to say, do we believe this is really the most compelling message? Right. Well, and, and like, it's, a whole, I'll tell you, I hear all the time, people will hear sort of a, a pitch for, for what we need to start doing to recapture uh, a sense of Christian education, where it's yeah. actual active learning environments versus passive ones where you're just receiving information, right. where the learner is partnering in the process. And they'll listen and they'll nod their heads. And then, uh, and then they'll say, well, but I mean, our people won't do that. Hmm. I hear it all the time. We're on the East Coast. Our people won't do that. Or we're in California. Our people won't do that. Or we're in the suburbs. Our people won't do that. And, and when you hear that, what are you really hearing, Jen? 
You hear them say those words in your mind. What are you really hearing people say? That's hard. Too hard for me. And I don't want to, I don't want to invest in it. But also I hear, well, you're not an evangelist for this. Like you don't actually believe this is mission critical Hmm. because if you did, then it would be more motivating to you personally. And then you would be more motivated to, to take it to your people. But the thing with our people is these leaders are absolutely right. Your people will never rise to an expectation that you have not set. So solid. So, you know, uh, wing it out there. What we have found consistently at the village is when we, that, that people actually gravitate toward committing to things that raise the bar, not things that lower the bar. But our MO with Christian education for the last 30 years has been, I don't think they'll do that. I'm just going to keep lowering this and lowering this and lowering this and lowering this. But people are highly motivated by things that require sacrifice on their part. That's why people run marathons. That's why people do whole 30. Who wants to do whole 30? Nobody. But they're highly motivated because they believe the outcome will be something of benefit to them. Because it's the most compelling narrative. That's right. It's, it's, the, mo- it's the more compelling narrative. My kid playing professional sports is yeah. a more compelling narrative. That's right. You know, me having that body that I had when I was, you know, 17 or, you know, yeah. those things are, are the more compelling narrative for people. And as leaders, we may not believe that it's the most compelling narrative to be biblically literate, to be. Um, like we would acknowledge that as true, but if we're yeah. not, if we're not, um, if we're not pushing that out to our people, we're, we're betraying the fact that we don't actually think it's that important. Yeah. We, we can't shut up about the things that we really believe in. Hmm. So what's, what's, if, if there's a, a leader out there, a church leader kind of staring in the mirror, so to speak, in this moment, kind of going, oh, you know, that's me. What would you say the right next step or a first next step for them in that moment? Just from your experience and working with leaders, um, what, what do you say is like, hey, hey, you want to turn it around. You know, this is, tr- think about this, do this. Um, you know, help, help me. They need to start by asking the right first question. And the first question that many of us in church leadership have asked has been, what do our people want? Hmm. And a better question to begin with is how are disciples formed? That's the question we should be asking before we start a women's ministry. That's the question we should be asking before we start a worship ministry uh, this is the most basic foundational question because it's 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 looking for a strategy to associate with the great commandment and the great commission. It's saying uh, if if we're supposed to make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, then what mechanism is going to allow us to do that? Uh, what tools are going to get us there? What commitment of resources? What commitment of time? Uh, what spaces is, is this currently happening in and to what degree is it currently happening? And so, you know, again, the, the question, the answer to the question, um, how are disciples formed, will give you general principles by which to start framing up a practice. Uh, but the practice might look different depending on your church. Um, so, for example, uh, the principle of how are disciples formed would, would lead us to say, oh, well, they're formed by, um, you know, the living and active word, by the power of the spirit working through that. They're formed uh, by these things taking place in community with one another. Um, they are formed by teaching by those who the Lord has gifted to teach, so on and so forth. So you might say, okay, these are some of the ways that this happens. But then in, so in my church in particular, the village, 
we do not have a Sunday school model for church, nor will we ever, just based on the constraints that we're up against from a facility standpoint and from a scheduling standpoint. And so, you mean, you mean on campus kind of Bible study right. Sunday so we, school? Yeah, we're we're in a place where because of our space constraints and and, and the way that our um, our schedule looks and our parking lot, it's all kinds of things. We cannot run any kind of adult um, uh, learning environment concurrent with a service. So that means that those have to happen midweek. But we have found room to have this happen because we believe convictionally that you need places that are designated specifically with the primary goal of learning happening. Uh, So historically, uh, we, like many other churches of sort of our age and demographic, had had as our highest value building community. And you can right. understand that that's a big value for us because we're a big church. And yeah, so yeah. people be able to connect meaningfully with one another is a really important value for us to have. It's just that that can't be our only value and it can't be our main value in every single environment that we have. And so for years, we had home groups. That was our entire mechanism for discipleship. So community group, whatever you call it, you know, everybody's, yeah, yeah. everybody's got a new name for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and we asked home groups to be the place where all discipleship was taking place. And it was a crushing burden for home group because home group is a great tool for building community. And that's not all that it's a great tool for, but that is its primary strength, right? Yeah, is, by the nature of being in someone's yeah, home, it's highly right. relational. Right, yeah. but it's also, it's a very organic ministry mm-hmm. model, you know, because home group schedules can move around according to the group. And uh, and I would even say that they home groups... Um, place a bit of a penalty uh, or they place a, a, a greater burden often on women to participate because women tend to be responsible for the nuts and bolts, the meeting time for the children, for the food and all that kind of stuff. And often the men show up for the discussion and we read, we read the lesson on the way there. Right. 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 And I don't say that really with any negativity associated with it. It just, it is what it is. They, they do tend to oh, I read the lesson on the way to our group. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. so, and generally speaking, the more organic, a ministry model is the harder it is for women in particular to opt in. Um, so why, why do you say that? Be, because women are typically primary caregivers for at least one other human being. And so in order for us to opt into uh, any commitment, we require a high level of structure, predictability, accountability, accessibility, excellence, um, and so those are all things that matter to us. Now, they matter to everyone. Those are actually structure, predictability, accountability, accessibility. All those things are things that, again, the personal trainer offers you or the, the kid's soccer coach offers you. But for whatever reason, sometimes the local church is like, well, we're just going to kind of piece it together however we want. And so uh, what we're going to be organic, which means yeah. we're not going to have a plan at all. We're just, right. yeah, yeah. Right, right, which is, uh, it just can be tough for long-term yeah. ministry. And it's not that you don't want to have some environments should be organic and, and yeah. that's actually the best way for them to function. You can argue that is the case with home groups. It just means that they're going to be limited in their effectiveness as learning mm. environments. So you're saying our learning environments, our primary educational environments yes. need to be structured, need to have accountability, yes. need to have that rhythm and that pattern. They can't be organic. Meet when you feel like it. Meet if it works for you, but they, there has to be the regularity right. there. And it's what does that look like for you guys? Well, oh, so it's sorry. not that there's no benefit to them if they're organic. It just means that only certain people will be able to opt in and you will only be able mm. to accomplish so much with them. But if you've said to yourself, 
I'm at a place where I know I need to raise the bar. We need to have at least some spaces where we're raising the bar and we're asking more from our people. Then those environments will require structure and accountability and predictability and accessibility and that they be done with excellence. So what do those environments look like for you guys? And you say they're not on Sunday morning. No. And uh, I mean, we would, you know, I I love that. There's no school like the old school. I can see why people used a Sunday school model. And I also understand why many churches set it aside. I don't think it was actually doing what it could have done at the point that a lot of people decided it was not something they wanted to keep doing. But I think the mechanism itself, the time of it and all of the pieces, you know, that was pretty sweet. If you had dropped really good content into that, you know, then it could have been (laughs) Could have been awesome. Uh, so for those of you who still have Sunday school, don't kill it. <laughs> like just try. Yeah, it. yeah. Let's strengthen it, it, right? That's yeah, what I hear you saying. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what we do is we do have midweek um, classes, and we they occur. You know, during the same they all we always start. For example, with the women's Bible study, it's always going to start the Tuesday after Labor Day, and it's going to be eleven weeks long. And so we're looking for how do we how do we place these? How do we remove as many barriers to entry in terms of what we know are the rhythms of our people's lives? Um, so we lower the bar on all of the typical barriers to entry. We're going to watch your kids. We're going to put it at a time you can come. It's going to be at the same place every week. It's going to happen at the same time every year. But then once we get you there, we're going to raise the bar on what we ask of you when you've opted into the environment. You're going to do work on your, you're going to have homework before you come. Uh, we're going to expect that you do it. Then you're going to have a small group time where you're going to have a thought level discussion around what we have talked about. Not a feelings level discussion, not a what this first means to me discussion. We're going to learn what is going on in the text. And then you're going to sit under teaching. Uh, and the teaching is going to help pull together any residual questions that you have that have arisen during those other two spaces. So we design the environments according to those three, those three occurrences. We call it the three-legged stool. And it's the personal time, the group time, and the teaching time in that order. Because if they have small group discussion time after they listen to the teaching, they won't talk about what they thought. They won't share their own observations and compare their own thinking. They will only regurgitate what they heard in the teaching time. And you've devolved again into a, 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 an inactive, a passive learning environment. Wow. So that's, that's solid. That personal time, group time, then the teaching time, right? Yeah. And then in that order. And in in some, some of that. What's been, what's been a moment where you've just seen, hey, we're, we're knocking it out of the park. Do you have just kind of a recent moment, maybe in, in the last, I guess it would be last spring at this point since it's not Labor Day yet, but you know, has there been a moment where it's just been like, man, this was killer. I mean, if, if we could see this happen in other churches across the country, everything changes. Well, we've been doing this. I don't know that I can say it's happened in the last six months because we've been doing this for, um, we're in our fifth year. We're starting into our fifth year. So that's our fourth year for the Bible studies because we didn't start them the first year here at the church. But then I've been working the same formula in a community format even before that. Uh, and so we've done it long enough at the village to know that it works. And I've done it long enough even before that to know that it works. It's not new. Uh, and in fact, I would say that in ministry, there's not always a lot of reward for trying something novel, that often it's best to say, what's a tried and true method and how can I imbue it with language that this current generation understands and with tools that this current generation is prepared to use. Um, So I would say that every year at the end of the year, we have them submit, you know, we send out a survey and they have to send back what they um, want to tell us. And so they can tell you ugly things or they can tell you (laughs) encouraging things. But to read, uh, the the one thing that we read over and over again is the comment, 
I have been in church my whole life and no one has taught me to do this until now. And it has completely changed the way I read the Bible. And that is like, every time I read it, people will say, I know you hear this all the time. And I'm like, if you think that someone like me gets tired of hearing something like that, you have misunderstood me. It is the best to hear that they now are feeling like they can come to the scriptures and open them uh, and not, again, it's not that they don't need teachers. It's that they know how to self-feed so that they're better prepared to receive the teaching. They begin to build a foundational knowledge of the text so that when they hear teaching, they know how to, to take it in. That's invigorating. I I can hear that. I love that. How, how have your methods shifted generationally? I mean, if we start to think about, you know, uh, these other generations, uh, most churches are reaching four, probably even close to five generations of, of, of learner now. Right. I mean, we've got almost five generations actively as adults in our church. Do you guys do anything or have you seen models where reaching generations in different ways or, or different techniques, uh, for younger or older generations? Well, what's interesting about the Bible study environments in particular is that while I talk a lot about building Bible literacy, uh, the, the, the little secret is that it's not actually just Bible literacy that they're developing. It's just literacy. Like we have a literacy crisis in our culture. It's not in the Bible literacy crisis is a subset of that. And so it's not just that Christians don't know how to read the Bible. It's that people generally don't know how to read period. They have not been taught how to pick up a book and and read it looking for the meaning that's there. And so when you think about that, then you begin to realize, oh man, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. This is something that everybody needs. Um, They all need these basic tools and virtually none of them have had exposure to them. Like, let's say there's people who've done like precept or BSF for years. It's not a process that you ever outgrow. It's one that just deepens and you get more um, capable with as time goes by. And so the nice thing about doing Bible study this way is it's evergreen. All you're doing is picking the next book of the Bible to go through and picking up the correct set of tools to go through it. But it's good for the new learner. It's good for the beginning um, learner. It's good for the new believer. And it's also good for the seasoned Christian who has had a lifetime in the scriptures. So you're saying you don't, I'm sorry. I was going to say that what we have found is that the, probably the biggest place where this needs to be introduced is middle school and high school. Why? Because what, what can happen in many student ministries, not all, but in many student ministries is that uh, right at the point where kids have gotten old enough to go to school and be told, hey, your, um, your calculus homework is going to take you three hours tonight, but we think you can learn this, or your physics homework is going to require this much work out of you, but we think you're capable, that they come to church and we go, hey, here's your sacred text. If you'll just give it 10 minutes a week to just read a little, that'd be cool. Yeah, just read one, one proverb yeah, a like day. A time. Yeah, yeah. And so you can hear it. You can hear the lower the bar mentality. It's like, well, there's, they got so much schoolwork. They're certainly not going to give time to this. Mm. Um, but if in their high school English class, they're being asked to treat the great Gatsby, they're being asked to annotate it. They're being asked to use the very tools that we are often not giving them to read the Bible. And so is it any wonder that many of them 
leave home and don't take the Bible seriously or don't take Christianity seriously when it has asked so little of them relative to these other things uh, that are part of their lives during those formative years. So we've begun uh, including middle school and high school students in our adult Bible study environments. And what's that, what's that result been? I mean, what have you seen? It's been so exciting. The first year we did it, I thought, gosh, I hope this isn't a total uh, failure and I get fired. But what ended up happening was um, they didn't all do the homework, right? And uh, we actually figured that would, that would be the case. It's particularly the eighth grade girls. It was a little yeah. bit of a challenge for those leaders. And I just want to give them a gold medal every time I think about it. Um, but that, you know, those, the leaders stuck with them and, um, kept, uh, I always say, even with the adult women, I'm always, um, um, acting as though they've done the homework, even if I know that they haven't, like I tell them, Hey, the teaching should move a little too fast for you. If you haven't done the homework, because the homework is supposed to help us go further in the teaching time. So, uh, we knew that the girls hadn't necessarily done all of the homework. Sometimes their discussion didn't exactly stay on track. And so then you're thinking, well, maybe that didn't work. But the most important element of them being present is that they, every Tuesday, walked into a room full of adult Christian women and saw modeled for them, this is what serious discipleship looks like. Because that's what you want when you're middle school and high school. You're always asking, how can I be grown up? And so we were like, you know what? We're going to pretend like they did the homework and hold them to doing the homework. But if all they see is this picture of what it looks like to be an adult follower of Christ, that's a huge win. And then and guess the, what? They started doing the homework. That's awesome. Yeah. How, how, I mean, how do we not leave the boys behind in that? Oh, the boys, the, we, we have room for the guys okay. too in, the, in the men's classes. And we currently, we don't have a mixed Bible study right now. We're not opposed to it. We actually wish we could. We just don't have space on it on the calendar right now for it, space in rooms, but we're working toward that. And and then you could have, you know, an entire family theoretically who was, who was coming. So we do keep them generally, um, they have a choice between whether they want to be in a small group with their parent or whether they want to be in a small group with their peers. Uh, and if they're in one with their peers, then it's led by a student leader. As a ministry. As a former youth pastor, I think that's so valuable to hear you guys approach the intergenerationally and really kind of inspiring those middle school, high school. And I'm so glad you you leaned in on that comment too, because I was about to make some snarky comment about you not watching Netflix or something <laughs> like that you sit around and read every night, but don't watch Netflix. And so, so much, What's so Netflix? much better. What's well, Netflix, right? Oh, we have, I don't watch TV. We don't really have any favorite shows. Yeah. You're going to give me all that, right? Yeah. The devil's picture box. Yeah. No. Perfect. We just sit around and read as a family, light a candle in the middle of the room and we all just read, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, what, what is your greatest hope for your impact in ministry? I know you're, you're a writer, you're a teacher, you, you speak to groups, you lead there at your church. At the end of the day, what's, what's the greatest hope of the legacy that you get to live today, but leave tomorrow other than the Zen garden on the roof? <laughs> Which is going to be awesome. It's going to uh, rock. I think, I think, uh, this has changed for me. I'll say when I started out in ministry, I hoped that I would contribute meaningfully to Bible study. And then I learned like most people in ministry learn that ministry is not actually about what you're doing, but about who you're doing it for. And I would say that now my hope is that I'll be remembered as an advocate for the overlooked. Uh, Ugh, get all choked up when I talk about this, but in many churches, um, 
the needs of women are not heard with regularity just because of a leadership structure that is perhaps predominantly or all male. And um, in my own church, there's been a lot of room made to make sure that the voices of women are included in our key conversations. And then we've been able to help other churches develop a vision for that as well. I didn't have that on my radar when I started in ministry. I really just wanted to teach women the Bible. But anytime you're spending a lot of time in rooms with women, you begin to have a growing awareness of the widows and orphans needs of the community of faith. Um, Not just those outside of the church, which are certainly things we need to have eyes for and that I find often women in leadership will see with with, um, more immediacy sometimes than the men will. Uh, Not necessarily, but often I have seen that to be the case. Um, But that within the church, we have widows and orphans needs that can sometimes um, be missed uh, by, uh, by men in leadership if they don't have access to regular input but from the women in the congregation. So rather actively, I found myself in a place to have influence over that conversation. And mm. I very much want to steward that well. What would you what would you say that begins with? I mean, how does it, how does a church begin to make sure if I'm sitting there as a leader and I'm hearing you and there's something that's resonant in your passion and in the spirit in me saying, yeah, we may be missing that. Mm-hmm. Put handles on that for me. I mean, you know, like do I have to open the floodgates and, and hire a female pastor now? Or, you know, I mean, you know, what is well, it? Look, you know, cause I think we, we live in a land of extremes, right? And, oh, and I yeah. think we either just like, we either have no women and no leadership roles right. and no authority. And just in case you right. know, someone accidentally uh, makes a good point, we don't want them to accidentally teach some men. Right. Or we go to the other side and it's like, you know, the, you know, you paint the picture of, you know, well, you know, everybody's going to hell in a handbasket because, That's right. you know, there's, there's a woman wearing a collar or something, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm, on, I'm on thin ice cause I'm a guy. I don't know how no, much I can talk about this, Jen. You no, know, you're, you're, you're describing it pretty well. Anytime you start talking about women in, in leadership in the church, you either, I'm either, I'm either perceived um, to be a feminist by those who are more conservative or a patriarchalist by those who are more <laughs> liberal. Right, and, right. uh, and there's, you know, everybody, everybody hates you for some reason. Then, is yeah, everybody loves a slippery slope argument, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, well, if you do that, then, you know, it's all, it's going to definitely slide all the way downhill to this extreme. And um, when the village began evaluating this, we decided that we were going to reject the notion that in order to evaluate a position, we were stepping onto one slippery slope or another. We, um, we felt that in this conversation in conservative theological circles, that there had been a pendulum swing that had gone beyond where um, we could make a theological argument for it. And, uh, but that even if we could say that our theological position was sound, we could not point to a flourishing practice as a result of that, that um, you could not look to the way that women were being deployed um, for ministry or utilized, uh, you know, for input within our church body and say, yes, this is a, this is a picture of the side-by-side flourishing of men and women. And so we very much wanted to, to correct that. So um, what it came down to us was to the recognition of that this is, this is not about whether, you know, men lead and women submit or however you want to frame it up, um, that that's the wrong way for us to be 
to be boiling down this argument. We wanted it to, to be based on what we thought was the overarching story the Bible wanted to give to us of how men and women relate to one another. And we found that the story that pervades the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one of the church is the family of God. Hmm. And that um, a healthy nuclear family, any, any good churchgoer would tell you, has a mother and a father and children. But that in many churches, uh, we have motherless, authoritarian, single-parent homes with fathers and children, but hmm. absent church mothers. And so then we just committed to making sure that our church was a place where you, you could say, that's a church mother. You know, that's a spiritual mother for the women in our church. Um, she's visible. She's obviously serving, contributing in good ways. Uh, and so, and, and guess what? I don't preach on Sunday mornings at the village. I, I don't want to. I've never once. That's not, some, that's not your, your, your big plan to take over yeah. is eventually. Well, can we just um, be frank here? If I had wanted to be the preacher on Sunday morning, would I have come to Matt Chandler's church? Like, wouldn't I have gone I mean, to at least it was a bad preacher. <laughs> weren't, we taught, weren't we taught that the enemy just kind of goes at our strengths, you know, because, we, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think that for those who are kind of new to the conversation, and I think that frankly, the Me Too movement has, has brought this to the forefront of a lot of people's thinking. And uh, for as sad as all of the stories are that come out of that movement and tragic, I am grateful if that's, if this is one of the benefits that we reap is that there's a new awareness of um, the church is the family of God and and partnership and, and listening to the voices of women. I do think just that the first, the first common misstep that that well-meaning men in leadership can make when they realize that they're missing the voices of women is to say, oh, let's let's ping our wives on this. Um, and it's not that their wives don't have a lot to add. They absolutely will. But typically a staff wife or an elder wife or a deacon wife, whatever that that title is, she will not have a normative experience of what it to be a woman in your church. She will be connected to other people simply by virtue of her position. Yeah, People will seek her out. They will ask her opinion. She will not have a normative experience of the woman. She walks who just in the door with status is what you're saying. She walks yeah. in the door with status and some yes. sort of uh, friendship, recognition, relationship right. where the average woman or single mom even is nowhere near that. That's right. So there's that piece. And then the other piece is just that. Um, putting women into rooms where key decisions are being made means that you're inviting someone into the room, not just because they're female, but because they're the right person to be in the room. And um, a wife of a staff member is not going to enter into those rooms with an eye toward potentially disrupting the course of events. Like she's not going to be someone who's going to go, well, I hear you're thinking this way, but what if we yeah. did, what if we thought about it this way? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, I mean, she might be, I'm not ruling it out, but I'm saying generally speaking, you need someone, uh, a female voice in the room who has a different set of considerations than, yeah. than a wife would. Yeah. There's nothing at stake outside the room. That's right. You know, or different with, things. it's usually yeah, different yeah, things that are at yeah, stake. But yeah, if, yeah. And, and I think ideally you're hearing from, you know, wives and from people who yeah. are stakeholders for other reasons. Wives, wives provide the, that input in a different way, in a different right. venue and with a different heart and a different mind. Um, that's huge. Um, I, I always ask three specific questions of every podcast guest. And so as we kind of wind this down, I, I don't want to run over this thought and I don't want to pin you in a corner or anything, but 
authorship of Hebrews, <laughs> do you think, and this is, this is me, do you think that it may have been Phoebe and that's why we don't know who the author is? No. <laughs> okay. 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 Good. 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 But nice try. <laughs> okay. Good. 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 If I'm picking somebody, I would probably pick Paul. I, it had to have been Paul, right? The only, I mean, the only, seems you know. easy. Also keeps me out of hot water. And he can, he can write in different styles. I mean, come on, uh, yeah. you know, he's writing to a different audience. Why would he not write with a little bit of a different voice? That's right. But also I feel like it must be none of our business, right? Yeah. You know what, what sealed it for me when I was doing some research on the connection between hospitality and generosity uh-huh. and I got to Hebrews 13, one and two, and then you go back to Romans 12, 10 through 13. And there's the same language. Yeah. Let yeah. brotherly love continue. Yep. Do not neglect to show hospitality to the stranger, you know. I and mean, so, whoever whoever it was was really close to Paul. Around Paul, yeah, yeah, could have yeah. been a, a female associate of Paul, and that's why we don't have a name. No, I'm just kidding. Oh man, Brian! Wouldn't that be great, though? Wouldn't well, that be great be, to get to get to heaven and go? Well, you know, it was me. Yeah, I mean, it'll be so interesting to find out. I also yeah. love. I've decided I love that we don't know who wrote Hebrews because I think. Um, the idea that whoever it was was such a so brilliant and and we don't know their name and that they're they're with the Lord right now and they're not sad that we don't know their name. Yeah. And I think, okay, I want that kind of a ministry. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of what I feel about it. If it is Phoebe though, that'd be that'd be, be really pretty rock and roll, wouldn't out. it? Be interesting to find out, yeah. yeah. All right, all right. Sorry, that was a little distraction there. Three questions and we're going to wrap this. What's one daily or regular habit you practice that keeps you close to the heart of God? Uh, I know I'm supposed to say that I have a 10 minute quiet time, but I, ugh, I, I think you're not. about to say you have like a three hour quiet time. You, hours, all you do yeah. is just read the Bible every day. Front of front of back. Right? <laughs> um, I don't do, I don't have a daily uh, practice of reading the Bible per se, which I, and I know, I know how that sounds. It sounds what? real bad. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I have always found that a better pattern for me is fewer, longer times in the mm. Bible instead of more shorter times. And so for any of you who need to be freed up for that, I'm here living for in the shame of, yeah, yeah. of not having a quiet time or just yeah. trying to keep your U version streak alive by right. opening it up and reading one verse real quick. Right. So I, I mean, I do absolutely think it's important to have a regimen. I think yeah. we are creatures of habit and we need repetition, repetition is the mother of learning, all of that. And so I do think a regimen is important, but uh, I have not been overly prescriptive in terms of it being daily. So uh, daily, I don't know. So every few days, every few days you carve out a larger uh, chunk of time? Well, sure. Yeah. But then it doesn't mean that on the day that I didn't sit and read that I'm not meditating on what I've been reading Mm. or praying about what I'm reading, praying in light of what I've been reading. So um, there's definitely daily interaction, but not necessarily a sitting down daily to read. Is there anything else that's, that's a daily thing for you that, you you know, if you miss it, you know, you feel a little disconnected? No, I can't point to anything. Coffee, if coffee is a spiritual experience. Yeah. I mean, I, think it's, a, I think it's a good gift yeah. given to us. Uh, yeah. And and it's good for other people, at least in my world. It's yeah. good for other people that, that God has given you that. What's how do you drink your coffee though? Are you an adult you are you using the word coffee, but you're really an adult milkshake drinker? No, I drink black drip coffee. Come on. All right. There you go. Yeah. The only and, time you should you know, cream is for bad coffee. Yeah. 
right? Famous for bad coffee and weak people. Yeah. Oh, okay, Brian. Let's do this. Let's Brian's do this. Going. Phoebe is the author of Hebrews and he's insulting all coffee drinkers. I feel safe. Not all coffee drinkers, <laughs> just people who don't actually like coffee. Like I, I believe if you have That's to put true. a bunch of cream and sugar in it, you don't actually like yeah. coffee. You just like caffeine That's and there's true. other ways to get caffeine. Um, yeah, so don't try to pretend like you're a coffee drinker. Yeah. Right. That's fair. I mean, I'm an elitist. If you go back to your first year of ministry and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? Uh, it would be to conserve my voice for the long term. Um, mm. I think I loved my own opinions. I mean, I probably do still love them, but I try not to say them the moment they pop into my head anymore. And so I guess another way of saying conserve your voice for the long term is just for, for the love of Pete, be slow to speak, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And which is like the opposite of Twitter, right? I mean, everyone is um, quick to speak, slow to listen and quick to become angry. And so I do see a lot of that in younger Jen. And I'm thankful that the Lord allowed that to be systematically out of sins against others and, and just misspeaks. But it would have been great if I could have said it to myself and if myself would have listened, which seems unlikely. None of us listened. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what maturity is, right? Learning to listen. <laughs> is there one book, last question, one book you consistently recommend or give as a gift? Yeah, I, my, my all-time favorite is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier. Why? Uh, it was, and some of that is because for me, I, I don't have formal theological training. And so I had to come by it on my own. My husband and I are just avid learners and we happen to have enough of an interest in it to go find things on our own. But that was my first face-to-face encounter with an exploration of the attributes of God. And I think because it was my first one, it still has had just such a powerful imprint on my thinking. But uh, the other reason I love the knowledge of the holy is because Tozier wrote it at the end of his life. So a lot of people love the, the earlier one, The Pursuit of God. Uh, and I, that's a great book. But I think when you read what someone wrote at the end of their life, then you're able to pick up on the themes that as the years went by, deepened for them and, and grew in their richness. And so I feel like by the time we get to the knowledge of the holy, it's like Tozier saying, here you go. These are the deepest treasures that I can give to you. And so I just, I've never gotten over that book. It's amazing. Well, thank you, Jen. This has been a gift and uh, I enjoyed um, just getting to hear your uh, perspective, getting to hear your heart and uh, getting to hear, even though we didn't isolate one particular breakthrough, I feel like we've kind of traced a few of those breakthroughs and and hopefully those will be uh, inspiring to others along the way. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, being a part. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Thank you for listening to My Ministry Breakthrough from the Oxano Podcast Network. You can head over to MyMinistryBreakthrough.com to join the conversation and access our show notes, including the books or other resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoy hearing these stories of ministry breakthrough, we would be honored if you would subscribe, rate, and even leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.